Orcas and salmon are friends that need help. Our ocean pals are facing some trouble. Less trouble, more bubbles. There's so much we can do. Do you know what I'm thinking? Let's start preaching extinction. Hello, and welcome back to the Breaching Extinction podcast. For those of you that are new here, the Breaching Extinction podcast explores the plight of the endangered southern resident killer whales through interviews with the people trying to save them. There are currently less than 80 southern resident killer whales left, and they are currently threatened by lack of prey, vessel noise, and water toxins. All these factors impact one another and play a significant role in their population decline. They have historically spent much of their time in the Salish Sea. However, they've been seen less and less likely forced out of their home by lack of prey as well as busy and toxic waters. I'm your host, Erica Wirth, and I decided to start this podcast in 2019 after spending a summer working in the Salish Sea and learning about these animals. Each week, I dive into a new conversation with guests from varying perspectives. I approach these topics through an interdisciplinary lens in hopes of uncovering the intricacies of this complex issue. Through this, I hope to share insight as well as fit the puzzle pieces together needed to save this species. I hope you guys enjoy this podcast. If you have any questions or are interested in being featured on the podcast or sponsoring us, please reach out over Instagram at Breaching Extinction or send an email to info at breachingextinction.com. Thanks. Hello, everybody, and welcome back to the Breaching Extinction podcast. I hope you guys all had a wonderful week. This week, I'm here with Mari uh, Solmte. How are you doing today, Mari? Good, thanks. Awesome. Well, thank you for being here. Uh, So tell us about yourself. Where are you from, um, and what is your current role? Uh, Let's see. Um, I was originally, I'm originally from Northern California. My dad was a professor at Humboldt State and I grew up on the ocean and fell in love with the ocean and animals and decided I wanted to study whales and dolphins because they were endangered at that time and little was known about them. And my parents were like, you know, that's not a real job. You can study as a hobby. So I got, you know, I think a degree in political science or something and actually got a job right after that, uh, studying humpback whales in Australia. And I did that for two years in Hawaii and did my master's in studying humpback whales in Hawaii and followed my dream. And now I run my own consulting business the last 23 years, looking at impacts of human activities on uh, marine mammals. That's incredible. Yeah. I think a lot of the people in this industry can relate to hearing that's not a real job. That can be your hobby. Yeah. Yeah. Um, So what is your consulting business? I think a lot of people are familiar with like traditional university research. What does consulting mean? Uh, Well, I, I have a environmental consulting. So that means that we get hired mostly by uh, private offshore wind developers um, or engineering firms. We've also done a lot of work for the U S Navy for National Science Foundation, and we focus on evaluating impacts of underwater noise on marine mammals, since they're protected under the Endangered Species Act and also the Marine Mammal Protection Act. Mm-hmm. Uh, they're required to get permitting and a lot of mitigation and monitoring when they have sounds that may exceed the thresholds regulated by the National Marine Fisheries Service. Mm-hmm. So that's what we do. So I, uh, been I did a lot of field work myself, and now we have about 150 biologists that go out on boats. Um, 
for two to six weeks at a time and pretty much monitor for any endangered or marine mammals and also sea turtles that occur within certain distance that's regulated of the, for example, the um, vessels that are uh, working on um, exploring suitable sites for offshore wind development. Wow, that's that's awesome. Very cool. Yeah. Um, so you recently published a paper titled Blue Whale Mother Calf Pair Behavioral Response to Vessel in Southern California Bright. So that's what we're here to talk about. So tell us how you came to uh, conduct this study. Well, let's see. I did a lot of work as a, as a contractor for the U.S. Navy in Hawaii and Southern California and Washington. And I was doing that because they were, you know, looking at the impacts of sonar on sonar on marine mammals. And they needed to do population studies to look at, uh, you know, do population estimates and figure out how many animals might be exposed to sounds during their mm -hmm. sonar training exercises. Mm -hmm. So I was doing aerial surveys for whales and dolphins off Southern California. And I hired my former advisor, Dr. Berndt Wersig, to work for me. And he says, well, if you're doing this work, you may as well do your PhD. So I did. I did 20 years after getting my master's. I think it was 52 when I finished my PhD. But I decided to uh, you know, use that data for my PhD. And so it was amazing. We'd fly in a small six-seater plane and we would do line transect surveys to do population estimates of all the species out there. And also when we uh, came across especially endangered species, we would circle and go offline and take video to look at the behavior, the baseline behavior of various species, uh, especially blue whales, humpback whales, minke whales, gray whales, fin whales. And this was just an incidental opportunistic observation we had. And there's very little known about blue whales, especially mothers and calves. And, you know, very little that's known about how they react to vessels. And it was a very interesting reaction that we saw. And so we wrote it up in a small note and um, got published. So it was kind of exciting. For sure. Yeah. Um, so what did you observe when you saw this? Uh, well, we were circling and we were collecting information like breathing rates and mother calf separation rates. And we were studying a mother calf like we usually do. Mm -hmm. And a small vessel zoomed right up to them because this is way offshore. I think it's 20 kilometers offshore. So nobody's really regulating. And actually, a lot of people don't even know that there's, you know, regulations to protect them. And right. so we had seen before the vessel got there it was a small, maybe I think a 10 meter vessel that the mm -hmm. mother calf had been nursing off and on. And when the vessel came, it pulled up, shut down its motors, and then the calf, being curious, which a lot of young, you know, youngsters are, approached the boat and and left its mother to go over there. And then when the vessel was, you know, tired of looking or whatever, took off really fast, and the calf spooked and swam and separated from its mom. Um, and during that whole period, I think it was like 10 or 15 minutes. No, it's more than that. It was more like, sorry, 50 minutes. Uh, the calf never nursed again that we saw, but it nursed before and after that incident. Mm -hmm. And so we saw, although it was a short-term reaction, so it, it sprinted away, it separated further from its mom than we had observed in the previous you know, entire time, and it didn't nurse. So that was, we thought that was important to identify and report. So, yeah. Yeah. Absolutely. Any idea what type of vessel this was? Like recreational, whale watching? It was recreational. There were maybe only four people in it. So it was probably just a fishing boat or a tourist boat, you know, a private tourist boat touring around. Gotcha. Yeah. I, we also got some really interesting video of, and I wanted to write that up someday, but uh, we were circling a whale again where a, a 
the vessel approached the whale and you could see the video from above it was an adult blue whale that actually swam all the way around the boat under the water. You could see it and was looking up at the boat from underneath. So very curious. And, and so, the, yeah, the whale circled it and the boat just stayed there and then it just took off. So, yeah, there's it's amazing the perspective you can get from an aircraft looking down like a bird. It's mm -hmm. just I love that perspective. Absolutely. Um, so, you know, obviously this sort of information is important and this is just like one event. I, I always try to, anytime I see a paper on a blue whale or a fin whale or something, yeah. I always try to yeah. have somebody on because we don't know that much about those animals. Yeah, exactly. Um, but obviously this is just like one event, like how, you know, um, are there other ways to collect data? Do you know if anybody's like trying to study this? Like how could we use this information to help blue whales? Let's see. Uh, there's two questions there. Helped, uh, I guess we can learn one thing for, as a scientist, I guess, is to find out which behavioral parameters are important to, to quantify, to study. Mm -hmm. And so we were looking at separation just between mother and calf, which is done in some studies, which it is facilitated by, you know, an aerial perspective. But one of the top blue whale scientists in the Pacific is uh, John Kalampakitis. And he and his group have done a lot of tagging of blue whales. Um, and we've learned a lot from that. Uh, he's also done a lot of work in small boats, studying them, especially off Southern California. Um, but, you know, I think California is one of the rare places where they come fairly close to shore. And that's one of the reasons it's so hard to study them as well. Yeah, definitely. Yeah. Yeah. That's a lot of what I've heard from, there was like a fin whale researcher that we had on a few weeks ago. And she mentioned that too, of like, we just don't see the whales that often. Um, yeah. And yeah, California is unique that, you know, they will sometimes come in a little bit closer. Yeah. And feed off there. Yes. So do you think based on this observation that, you know, maybe this, that maybe we should have more enforcement and or regulations around the blue whales? You know, it's hard to know because what are the long-term impacts of short-term reactions? We don't really know that very well. So we need more research there. Um, but I think the the biggest threat, one of the biggest threats to blue whales really is just the vessel strike. There've been quite a few papers on that. And John Calabakitis and his colleagues have been really instrumental in, you know, adjusting the, the uh, what are they called? The vessel traffic lanes off central California to avoid mm -hmm. blue whale migration corridors. So I think working on that is the most important, but I think it's really important also that when you have small observations like we did here, that you publish them to make them available so that you know people know that there's this information. Maybe if somebody has a longer term study, they can base it on the same parameters that we collected, you know, the 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 blow rate and things like that. So that's where I think it's important to contribute. It's so hard when you're studying rare animals. Uh, not everybody publishes. It's so hard to gather what's available information out there. So I really encourage our team to to publish. And another paper we published off Southern California was a collection of observations from the aircraft of nursing behavior with fin whales, killer whales, gray whales, uh, the blue whale. I think, did I say fin whale? <laughs> yeah. So, and that was, that's a really, that's where we looked at those, some of those parameters of separation distance and do calves have a left or right hand you know, ride on their moms and that kind of thing. So um, it is, it is, and I did my master's on humpback whale and mother calf pairs too. So I, I have an affinity for mothers and calves because they're important. <laughs> Absolutely. Um, what did you find in that other study that you just brought up? Uh, the nursing study. Uh, we found again that there, I can't remember which side it was, but that when calves, like, uh, what do they call it? They call it, uh, you know, head ride or bow ride with their, their mother. Um, they have a preferred side. 
Uh, mm -hmm. We found that, you know, the, the distance between the mother and calf when they're very young doesn't vary very much. Mm -hmm. And we also looked at the duration of nursing bouts. And we found that they, you know, the mother, they go and looked at positions when they were nursing. Mm -hmm. And we looked at durations of nursing bouts too. So uh, it was similar to probably some captive studies that have been done, but it just hadn't been really done or, or quantified for the wild before for sure. those species. Yeah. Um, and did you find like similar time periods for the different species that they were like nursing for similar amounts of time or was it different based on the species? Um, I'm trying to remember probably very short, very short bouts, you know, a minute or two at a time, maybe because the calf has to come up and, and breathe as well. Sure. Yeah. yeah. And I used to, part of my job was swimming with mother and calf humpback whales in Hawaii. And then we got to observe them, you know, what they were really doing underwater. And we also published a paper on the first, uh, first known vocalizations between a mother and a calf. Oh, that is so cool. Yeah. Even the calf vocalized? Yeah. They make oh these, little, these little grunts and they're in Hawaii, it was really interesting because oh. on Maui, uh, the humpbacks are pretty used to vessel traffic, right? So right. in the water, we had a special research permit to do this. And the mother would sit on the bottom and with her eyes closed and not even bought, you know, wasn't upset at all that we were in the water, it seemed like. And then mm -hmm. the calf would be bored and come up and sort of circle around us and, and swim right up to us and actually make grunting noises at us and look at us, turn directly at us, turn so they could see with their eye. And come like within a, a foot or two of our of, of us while we were swimming. Oh my gosh, that's incredible! Yeah. yeah, we definitely have noticed when we have our you know quote unquote friendly whales or whales that yeah. mug like, and curious. Um, that it's oh it's almost always the babies. Yes, exactly. Yeah. Except for the gray whales down off uh, Laguna San Ignacio, right? I haven't been down there yet. That's my dream. But I hear about all the adults and everybody come up and scratch on the boats there, which is interesting. Yeah. Yeah. It's, I've always found the gray whales to be like a very boring whale to watch, but a, one of the more interesting animals, because when they come through here, like I live in the Monterey Bay, they're just like in stealth mode. They're like, I'm just trying to knock it eaten and go through, yes. you know, the killer whales will eat them. Um, but it seems like when they go down there, it's like a totally different animal. Um, like they're just, they're, they seem to be a lot more, I don't know, boisterous maybe is the right word where they're just interested and uh, maybe not so stressed about just yes. <laughs> heading down. Um, very cool. So you said that you focus mostly on um, humpback whale, mother and calves. Can you give us a little bit of insight on the relationship between the two? Uh, well, what I did for my master's thesis is this is way back, you know, I think in the 90s or something. I was concerned about there was a lot of uh, data that indicated that mothers and calves were getting pushed out of their preferred breeding ha or nursing habitat, uh -huh. habitat around the edges of Maui. So I decided to go to the big island where the vessel traffic was much reduced to look mm -hmm. at what, what is what are the base, what do mothers and calves prefer? Do they, mm -hmm. is there actually a statistical, you know, preference for these shallow or near shore waters? And I found that there were. And I also found that as the season progressed, as the calves got older, they started moving further offshore. And one of my hypotheses was, and other people have, you know, taken this on and done other studies on it, is that mothers and calves are coming close to shore to avoid, you know, marauding or marauding, is it marauding? Whatever the word is, uh, males that are coming to, they want to potentially breed and harass the mothers and calves because the 10% of the mothers come back into estrus and could get pregnant again. Mm -hmm. So um, that's when my thesis was that they prefer the near shore area, but off Maui at that time, there was a lot of jet skis that were coming in that were, you know, 
mm-hmm. uh, conflicting with mothers and calves. And so they actually were able to, with the data that they gathered, uh, stop the jet skis during that certain period of time in those important areas. Wow, that's incredible. Yeah. So how long do humpback whale calves continue to nurse? Like for how many months or yeah, it's, let's see. Some some are weaned by the time they get back to Alaska, so probably less than a year. Some are still with their mother. Like, no, I don't know. That's a good question. I don't know if the studies in Alaska have shown that those calves that accompany their mother are still nursing or not. You go, you know, it's harder to see the waters there. Um, but I, I think they, they nurse for about probably 10 to 11 months or something. Okay. Yeah. I then yeah. you know, and I used to be, I used to do whale watches in Hawaii too. And I think they gained something like seven pounds an hour. From oh my God. Them. I know. And it's really crazy. That's ridiculous. Yeah. I knew that they gained weight quickly, but I didn't know that much. My Lord. Yeah. yeah. Well, that, that, uh, I've also seen, you know, milk in the water with mothers and calves and it's like really fatty and it's, it's just so full of fat. It makes them, you know, it helps them gain weight quickly. Definitely. And how long do the humpback whales stay with the mom? Uh, that's another, that varies too. I, like I said, sometimes they're gone the year later when they come to Alaska, sometimes they stay longer, but usually I, I don't think it's more than a little over a year. For sure. Yeah. That's crazy. Yeah. Um, and what did you see with the fin whale mom and calves? I'm just curious because we don't know anything about fin whales. Yeah. Yeah. Um, well, we got video. It was amazing, actually. I think they were with uh, northern right whale dolphins, probably about a thousand northern right whale dolphins, and they were bow riding um, on the mother and calf, and the calf is kind of playing or interacting with all the dolphins around them. That's crazy. That's so cool. Um, so a lot of your work focuses on like mom calf pairs. Why, you know, do you have this focus, and why is it so important to you? Well, I think they're, you know, one of the among one of the most vulnerable piece parts of the population, right? And so you're protecting those two. And so I really think that um, it's important to understand that relationship and important their habitat preferences because we have to protect the next generation to continue and, and help the animals um, recover. Absolutely. Yeah. Um, those babies are cute, you know, I'm still one of those. <laughs> yes, they are super cute. I, I'm very excited. I'm going to Maui for the first time. Oh this year in february and we have the humpbacks here but i'm excited to see the little babies oh like, my gosh tiny yeah, it's, humpbacks. it's whale soup it's incredible when i did my master's thesis in the early 90s there weren't that many humpbacks but they've increased so much there i mean you see them all the time off now it's it's a great recovery story that's amazing yeah I, we have a very good recovery story here in the monterey bay too i feel like the theme with humpback whales is they're just extremely resilient animals they are. Well, and they also, they have, you know, the sh- relatively short uh, reproductive period compared to, for example, the right whales or the bowhead whales. Um, uh, but the gray whale whales have that too. And so that's, I think, what's allowed those species to recover so quickly as well. And also they weren't reduced to the small numbers that the fin whales and the blue whales were. But you look at this, we still don't know where, how, you know, fin whales and blue whales give birth. Uh, we don't know if they have preferred, you know, calving areas. Um, it's just that the gray whales and the humpbacks come close to shore for those periods of their life. And that's why we've learned so much about them. But this, you know, that's what I love about studying whales and dolphins. It's still a mystery. So much is still a mystery. Yeah, definitely. I always find that like, you know, we may say something, cause I work on a whale watch boat, say the same thing oh. for like years. And then 
the whales will do something different or someone will publish a study and we're like, oh, well, we were wrong. You know, they're always showing us something new and proving us wrong. You don't, you don't work with Nancy Black, do you? I do not. No, I oh, work okay. for Sanctuary Cruises. Oh, oh, the Sanctuary does cruises. That's is it or is that just the name? It's the name of the company. Yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah. Do you have you worked with Nancy Black before? Yeah, I went to grad school with her at Moss Landing Marine Labs there, you know, okay. just south of Santa Cruz nice. in Monterey Bay. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. She that woman is so dedicated. She goes, it seems like seven days a week and sees the most amazing things. So yes. Yeah, they they definitely see a lot on those boats for sure. They do. I mean, don't you think I mean it seems like the density of all those species has increased quite a bit. And you know, now they have the well, for the last 20 years or something, you have the bottles dolphins that have come up there and become regular residents too. Yeah, it's like it's it seems like there's a lot. I've only been here for like three years. So but even in my short little period of time here, um, it does seem like there's a lot of animals, there's a lot of diversity. Um you know, you just never know what you're going to see. Um, I was talking to a friend of mine and I found this really interesting. She said that they hear sperm whales on the hydrovone, um, 150 days out of the year here. We don't ever see sperm whales. Like, I mean, they've been seen occasionally. It's like, you see them every couple of years. Um, and I guess they don't fully know the range on the hydrophone that's out here, but apparently there are sperm whales here 150 days out of the year. That's incredible. That's incredible. I saw, I saw, I wrote a paper, another note on sperm whales off of San Diego. We only saw them, I think once, but it was a group of maybe 20 and it was actually, uh, let's see, no bulls. It was all, was it a bull? I can't remember if there's a bull there, but anyways, mothers and calves. And so there were these Rizos dolphins and um, Northern right whale dolphins that to start approach the the sperm whales and the sperm whales did that marguerite foundation you know where they stick their heads in the middle and their tails out as mm-hmm. if the, and the rizos were charging them and the right at the sperm whale's head it's almost like they were playing chicken so but we That's think our, our theory was that the, they would wait at the surface as the sperm whales dove and when the sperm whales came up they start charging them the sperm whales would drop their mouths open and maybe they were regurgitating their squid you know, and the reasons we're eating that. That's been reported a few times with sperm whales and other and pilot whales and things. So these animals are so weird. Like that's yes. so that's so crazy. Um I've it's so interesting to see like the different interactions between the species too. Like you just I yeah. I would have never thought that sperm whales were gonna kind of like baby bird the Rizzo's dolphins. That's crazy. Um what has been like one of your best experiences that you feel like on the water, maybe one of your coolest encounters? Uh, well, I guess probably my first time I ever swam with humpback whales. I was with a, a, a female and male and the male was courting the female and I got in the water and I didn't approach them. I was just, you know, hanging in the water. To, we were taking photographs to, to sex the animals. Right. Mm-hmm. Uh, so the male must have been threatened by me in the small vessel we were. And so he charged at me took a nine degree turn and blew bubble screen all around and I couldn't see anything and they just disappeared. So that was like a threat display. Scary, but also thrilling. So Definitely. that was probably, yeah, yeah. Yeah, I've always like wondered that because I know some people go to Tonga to swim with the humpbacks and um, I have a friend that has done that and said that like sometimes the mothers will get aggressive or sometimes the males will get aggressive and you have to watch yeah. them. And I'm like, that's a that's a giant animal and you are not on land. So it's definitely probably a challenging thing to get out of there. Yeah. I've had another one too, where I was setting humpback whales in Hawaii and you know, the little calf is probably less than a week old 
is not very coordinated. And again, same kind of thing, kind of popped up next to our little maybe 10 foot skiff and just decided to hit us with his tail, just play. And then he mm-hmm. practically knocks our boat over, right? They don't realize how how strong they are. For sure. Yeah, yeah. No, that's, yeah, they definitely don't. We've had, one time we had a mom like come tail lob next to the boat and she like grazed one of the hands of our passengers, like really? just lightly. But we've had the whales come over and like push our boat before. And it's like, or I've seen them po- like push boats from the boat that I'm on. Like it can... The, I think the whales don't know, or maybe they do know, but I don't know. They just like sometimes get a little bit close, a little too close for comfort. Yes. A friend of mine published a paper on, I think it was near the Mariana Islands, and they came across us a, a group of sperm whales, and the large male bull sperm whale actually charged and rammed their huge Noah vessel. I think it was a maybe it was a Noah vessel, but it was a large vessel, rammed it over and over. And his theory was that it was a whale had that had been through the whaling days and was, you know, threatened by the vessel. Isn't that interesting? That is really interesting. Yeah. That's, I mean, I, that makes sense. It's just crazy that like, the, like you're totally right. That's the one thing about like whales and dolphins is like, it's constantly a mystery. We never like, it's going to take us a long time to figure out what they're doing just because it's so difficult to study them. It is. Yeah. Well, that's what's so exciting about the tags and the underwater cameras that have been attached, you know, with suction cups to blue whales and then to gray whales and humpback whales. You can see a little bit, but as soon as they go too deep, you can't. It's too dark. Yeah, <laughs> for sure. Yeah. Um, so do you have any other publications in the works or any studies that you're excited about in the upcoming near future? Well, let me think about it. Um well, I one that I've been grinding through for about a year, but it's super, not super exciting, but it's, we did a baseline studies on um, whales and dolphins off the coast of Coos Bay, Oregon, and mm-hmm. now they're proposing to offshore wind there. And so it's important for us to try to get that out that soon so we can help contribute to the baseline and what's known for that area of Coos Bay, where they're going to, where they plan to put, or they hope to put uh, offshore floating wind platforms. Um, we, what else do we publish? Well, I did publish... <laughs> It's not well related, but I went, I helped a friend of mine study her PhD on African wild painted dogs in Zimbabwe. And so we published a couple of papers off that. She was tracking them way back in the, you know, in the, um, in the outback or whatever you call it. But uh, she was looking and put out those remote motion sensor cameras mm-hmm. to look on game trails. Um, well, well, if depending on the width of the trail and how much it's used, does that encourage predators of of the painted dogs, which are the lions and the hyenas, to go down these? And actually, she saw more poachers than she did lions and hyenas on her cameras. That's interesting. Yeah. Yeah. Wow. Yeah. Uh, and we did have one video of a big bull elephant that had a huge tractor tire around his neck, and it probably I would. Yeah, it was yeah, it was young. And so maybe it'll eventually die because it chokes itself. But obviously couldn't get it off. Yeah. Oh my bad. God, that's terrible. Yeah. So anyway, I, sorry, I digress. That was that's that's kind of exciting. When you've done whales all your life, it's kind of fun to study a terrestrial rare, you know, endangered animal, mammal. Yeah, absolutely. Um, that's crazy because we definitely obviously have issues with whale entanglement. I had never thought of like an elephant or another animal getting stuck in something like that that's crazy i know i know Um, it's kind of like the sea lions when remember you've seen pictures where you get caught like you said with a fishing line or remember the six pack the old plastic yeah yeah Yeah, definitely um that's wild well it sounds like you've had a lot of 
really interesting experiences with wildlife. Um, I know a lot of your work has to do with the wind farms. Can you shed a little bit of light into how wind farms can impact whales? Yeah, that, well, main thing they're looking at the agencies is underwater noise. And mm -hmm. so when there's certain equipment that exceeds the, the threshold that's regulated, um, that would be like pile driving for offshore wind. Yeah. So they have it, they're just starting to do some of the construction off the East Coast. And they have know from offshore wind development in Europe that pile driving can um, can you know interfere with whale communications. Um, mm. It can change the distribution short term of some animals, and so they are looking now to have uh, developed certain larger exclusion zones. So that means that while they're doing their pile driving operations for the platforms that are, are on foundations, you know, in the in the bottom of the ocean, uh, they have to make sure and monitor with, I think it's a couple kilometer radius to make sure there are no animals within a certain distance before they start their pile driving. Mm -hmm. And also they're regulating during certain, especially in the North Atlantic right whale migration, they're putting more restrictions on, you know, development during those periods as well. So yeah. offshore wind has very re relatively minimal impacts uh the pile driving is the biggest concern uh but compared to like oil and gas there's there's uh makes louder noises yeah very interesting um well do you have any final thoughts for our listeners uh i don't know follow your dreams and you know do something gives you, you're passionate about and makes a difference in the world and you know i think when you follow that and you really are genuine about it you can make a difference all of us can make a little bit of a difference here and there and yeah. that's why I mean, I could have gone to be a professor or something and not, I'm not talking about professors. There's great, but I didn't, I really wanted to have something that had more of a, a short term um, influence on how project could mitigate or change the way they were uh, operating or developing. Um, and so I, that's why I picked consulting where you're working more with, you know, real time construction. How do you balance the need for, you know, offshore wind development and also conserve the animals and, and learn more about them. So that's yeah. Definitely. Yeah. Awesome. Um, and then one question I always ask people is what can we learn from the whales? Learn with the whales. Um, that's a good one. Uh, what can we learn from the whales? Uh, I don't have an answer to that. What can we learn? From we, there's so much to learn from them. I guess it's just, I can't think of a one thing that we can learn from them. Um, I, I just want to learn more about them so we can help conserve and manage them better. I mean, yeah, what, yeah. yeah, definitely. Awesome. Well, thank you so much for being on the podcast. Yeah. Uh, thank you for asking me. Yeah. yeah, of course. All righty guys have a good rest of your week and stay tuned for next week's episode. Let's see.